There's certainly a sense in which the verses we are about to read, 22 to 27 of chapter 1, follow naturally upon the ones we considered last time insofar as James is in both sections addressing our behavior in reference to the Word of God. But then the entire book addresses our behavior in that way. It's a book of wisdom, after all. But this section addresses the Christian life in a different way than it is or was addressed in verses 19 to 21 and introduces a new principle of Christian wisdom. We begin to read at 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Verse 22 is probably the best known verse in the book or letter of James. We've made a point of saying that James, like other wisdom writers, moves from one subject to another with little discernible plan. In this case, there is at least this much connection between verses 21 and 22. In the former, we're challenged to receive with meekness the implanted word, and the latter begins be doers of the word and not hearers only. Biblical Christianity, as you know from reading your Bible, is never passive. It is always active, a life to be lived. If you remember, the Lord Jesus himself pronounced his blessing on those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's Luke 11:28. And it was Paul in Romans 2, verse 13, who wrote, It is not those who hear the law that are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law, or in the language of James, do the law, who will be declared righteous. Now, it's hardly only Christians who believe that people ought to do and not simply to hear. Jewish rabbis, pagan moralists said the same thing in those ancient days, and they say the same thing today. What else does a phrase such as, put your money where your mouth is, or actions speak louder than words, what do such phrases mean, apart from being be a doer rather than simply a hearer? This is typical, as you know, of biblical wisdom literature, as we've already seen and said. It's commonsensical, so it doesn't surprise us that people who aren't Christians say much the same thing in many cases. But of course, James is not talking about any doing. He's talking about the doing of the Word of God. What he means by being deceived in this context, obviously, is to be misled about one's true religious or spiritual condition or state. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." Now, James' analogy is not immediately obvious to the reader, not least because he doesn't complete the comparison, but he breaks it off in the middle. So what is the point of the comparison? 
how or in what way the man looks, different in each case, what he looks at, different in each case, or what the result of his looking is, different in each case. Precisely how is the one who only hears the word and doesn't do the word, like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror and goes away and forgets what he was like. Believe me, I can tell you after this week, commentaries devote pages and pages to this question. So let me summarize. (coughs) We can see what James is after by noticing how the behavior of the man in the mirror in verses 23 to 24 is contrasted with that of the one in verse 25. The first one observes, goes away, and forgets. The second one looks into, perseveres, and acts. It has sometimes been thought that the difference that James is getting at is that the first man just glances at himself while the other man looks intently or peers into the law of liberty. But actually, both words convey a sense of careful intentional, concentrated looking. The difference rather is found in what comes after the looking. In regard to the man looking in the mirror, we read that off he goes. He's seen enough. Now he devotes himself to other things. But the man who looks carefully into the word of God takes care to translate what he has read into his daily behavior. That's the doer of the word. The picture is of a person who reads, listens to the Word of God with the conviction that there is something of real practical importance for him or her, something that needs to be translated into action. Now, we shouldn't think of the law here as a reference simply to the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments, the many other commandments that elaborate those ten. James is writing as a Jew steeped in the ancient Hebrew Scriptures, Torah, the Hebrew word, ordinarily translated law in the Old Testament, actually means teaching. And it includes, and is often used to describe, the entire Bible, not simply the commandments per se. It includes rules for living, of course, but also the entire revelation of God, theology and ethics together. In this case, it's the equivalent of the implanted word in verse 21, and word in verses 22 and 23, and indeed word of truth in verse 18, that word that brought us forth to life. The law of God is the law of liberty because, as the Bible teaches us in many ways, obedience to God's commandments is the true path to human freedom and flourishing. Everybody wants to be free. It's one of the most powerful of all human motivations and one of the least carefully defined or understood. What is freedom? The modern person in the Western world, without having given much thought to the question, imagines that the law is the enemy of freedom because he or she defines freedom as thinking whatever one wishes acting however one pleases. But that's not liberty as the Bible understands liberty. And of course, it's not liberty 
as a human being craves liberty. Indeed, liberty in that conception, at least as human experience demonstrates, is more like bondage because self-indulgence in foolish, willful, selfish behavior produces human misery and increasing uh, captivity to destructive patterns of thought and life. They never produce a well-ordered, satisfying, and useful life. A husband who says what he pleases and does what he pleases is in the nature of the case not a good husband. And he does not bring freedom to others in close relationship to him, to his wife, to his children. According to the Bible, the law, the word of God, is God's owner's manual for human life. He is the one who made it, and so he knows how to get the most out of it. How to create a human life that is free to do what human lives ought to do. Human beings who are free to be and become what human beings were always intended to be and become. You buy a new car and you treat it according to the, to the instruction in the owner's manual, your car will run for years, give you years of trouble-free service. If you hitch it up to a plow and take it into the back 40 and plow your field with it, it won't take, it won't take long before your car is ruined, a piece of junk. You can't drive it. I wish I were free, like Mr. Bechtel at the piano. But I can go over and plunk chords. What I'm not free to do is to play beautiful music on the instrument. And the reason is I've never learned to obey the laws of the piano. I've never come really to understand even what those laws are, which obeying would grant me the freedom to play whatever musical, beautiful music I might choose to want to hear. Again, as we've noted before, James seems always to have the teaching of the Lord Jesus himself in the back of his mind as he writes. In this case, remember the Lord saying to his disciples the night he washed their feet, if you know these things, blessed are you. You're going to be happy. He might as well have said you're going to be free if you do them. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, deceives again, this person's religion is worthless. Now the word group that includes religious and religion referred to the external manifestation of spirituality or one's relationship with God. Or it referred to the total outward expression of one's theological or spiritual commitment. As we know from Holy Scripture, from our own observation of life, it is possible to be very religious, by which is meant be very faithful at the observance of rituals, attendance upon worship, the performance of what are regarded as religious duties, observances, observances and performances that may be right, even good, even necessary in themselves, but which are rendered worthless, are nullified by a failure to live one's actual daily life in consistency with the principles that lie beneath 
and which explain those religious observances and performances. This, of course, as you know, was repeatedly the problem in Israel's history. An outward show of loyalty to Yahweh rendered meaningless, worthless, by indifference to Yahweh's commandments, among others, those commandments that required people, God's people, to care for their neighbors, to care for one another. In this case, James uses the example of the unbridled tongue as the kind of behavior that can nullify the conscientious performance of rituals and observances of the Christian faith. Unbridled means uncontrolled, as the bridle is the means by which a rider controls the horse he is riding. James might have used anger, as he did earlier, or any number of other sins to illustrate his point, but wisdom literature lays, as you know, great stress on the importance of speech, and James is typical of wisdom literature in this way. There are some 60 verses in the book of Proverbs that refer in one way or another to our speech. Indeed, he's going to have a good deal more to say about our speech as the letter continues. This is in large part because our speech, our tongue, is in many ways a window on our inner life, our true character. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, <coughs> God the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, don't suppose that James is providing here a complete definition of true religion as if all one had to do was to visit the needy and keep oneself from the temptations of the world as if one didn't need to pray, one didn't need to worship God, didn't need to be baptized, didn't need to participate in the Lord's Supper. He's not saying that any more than the Lord Jesus was saying that when in Matthew 25, he said that he would separate the sheep from the goats at the day of judgment according to whether they had supplied food to the hungry, welcomed the stranger, clothed the naked, and visited those in prison. In fact, James uses the same verb here translated to visit as the Lord Jesus used in Matthew 25:36. Obviously, no one should take Jesus to mean that by not mentioning keeping one uns oneself unstained by the world, he meant that you could be as sexually promiscuous as you were wanted to be, as eager for fame and fortune as you desired to be, so long as you cared for the poor and visited prisoners. The point is simply that real faith, real hope, real love are demonstrated in a practical concern for others, a point the Bible makes many times. Indeed, the care of widows and orphans, as you remember, is a prominent theme in the Old Testament. And here, James adds that real faith is also demonstrated by a real desire and an effort to live a holy life. Again, a point very often made in the Bible. As Jesus put it, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. One of Paul's exhortations to his younger assistant, Timothy, was keep yourself pure. Take note once again that the reference to God the Father in verse 27 serves to underscore the relationship between true religion and a life that reflects God's own. We are to live like God 
as much as mere human beings can aspire to imitate his character and his commitments. You remember how the Lord Jesus put it in his Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And in particular, we are to love as our heavenly Father loves, as he loved us, the needy, the unworthy. So we are to love others. By the way, James is going to take up all three of these ethical concerns, the tongue, concern for the poor and needy, and moral purity, um, uh, later in his letter. Thus far, the word of God. It's a commonplace, you know this, of all faithful teaching and preaching of the Bible, that salvation requires both that we believe and that we obey. That we trust the Lord Jesus for our salvation and that we follow the Lord Jesus in our living. Our justification may be by faith alone, but salvation in its entirety requires obedience. That holiness, as we read in Hebrews 12, without which no one will see the Lord. In his message of the kingdom, the Lord Jesus announced the overwhelming, the amazing wonder of God's sovereign grace reaching down to reclaim sinful people for himself. But no one of any biblical writer emphasized as strongly as the Lord Jesus himself the need for people touched by God's grace to offer their lives to him in radical world-renouncing obedience. Both the gracious initiative of God and the grateful response of human beings are necessary aspects of the gospel. Many times, in many ways, the Bible teaches what A.W. Tozer put this way, theology of whatever kind is worthless and useless unless it is obeyed. What James says here, no serious Christian should dispute. Though, to be sure, through the ages, some have spoken and written in a way that suggested that it was possible to be a Christian, a true believer in Jesus, an inheritor of salvation, without living the Christian life, without obedience to God's commandments, and without what we would nowadays call a Christian lifestyle. But I am pretty confident in assuming that you all know this is not possible. The Bible says it is impossible too many times in too many different ways. When Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven, he was not talking about your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He was talking about your obedience, your way of life. He was not urging you there to trust in him for your justification as he would in some of his later teaching. He was urging you there to obey the will of God in your daily life. The notion, as it is sometimes described, that a person can have Jesus as his or her Savior without having Jesus as his or her Lord, what came to be called the cardinal Christian theory in the 20th century, it's never taught in the Bible. It contradicts the plainest, the most emphatic teaching of the Bible. But James is not talking about the occasional failure of attention, of which we are all far too guilty. My father used to tell a story on himself. He was assisting Dawson Trotman in one of his evangelistic crusades. He was a very fine pianist 
and was often asked to help with music at these kinds of meetings back in the middle of the century. Dawson Trotman, as you may know, was the founder of the Navigators. And if you know anything about the Navigators, which ministry is every bit an extension of the personality and the enthusiasms and the commitments of Dawson Trotman himself, they are very big on daily devotions, usually including scripture memory. This particular morning, my father came down from his room to the hotel dining room at breakfast, sat down at Dawson Trotman's table, and was immediately asked by the man himself, Bob, what did the Lord give you from the word this morning? Well, my father usually had morning devotions, but that morning he'd been late getting up, and, well, you get the picture in his great embarrassment. He had to admit that he hadn't read the word that morning. Sin of sins to Dawson Trotman. Well, he wasn't going to make the same mistake twice, so he was careful the next morning to read his Bible before going downstairs. Again, he sat down to breakfast. Again, the first thing out of Trotman's mouth was, Bob, what did the Lord give you from the Word this morning? And though he had read the Word, at that moment he couldn't for the life of him remember what it was he had read. He was like that man who looks at himself in the mirror and then off he goes, forgetting what he had seen, or in this case, what he had read. It's one thing to fail twice at your morning devotions. It's another thing to have to admit the same to Dawson Trotman. We all do that, of course. Either fail to read or read with just half a mind. But that sort of forgetfulness is not what James is really after. He knows we all fall short in many ways, as he will say in chapter 3, verse 2. He's talking about the settled convictions of our lives, our real aspirations, our real intentions, and in particular, our eagerness not just to be known as a Christian, but actually to live like one. Throughout the history of the faith, from the very beginning of the story of God's people in the world up to our very own day, the presence of nominalism in the Christian church has been an immense problem, a ball and chain to the Christian church. By nominalism, we mean a commitment that is in name only. Nominal comes from the Latin word nomen, which means name. A nominal Christian is someone who has the name of a Christian, claims to be a Christian, poses as a Christian, may very well even be punctilious in the performance of Christian ritual and, and certain forms of Christian service, who certainly thinks of himself or herself as a Christian, but lacks any true living desire to be Christ's man or woman in heart and speech and behavior. He has the name of a Christian. He lacks any commitment to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. Any aspiration to model his or her own life on the character and the behavior of God himself. The nominal Christian wants to love God and love money. To have a foot in the church of Jesus Christ, but to keep another foot firmly planted in the world. He wants to have the reputation of a Christian, though he would never put it to this himself or this way. He wants to have the reputation of a Christian without having to pay for it 
with the blood, sweat, and tears that real godliness requires. He is the would-be disciple of Jesus who has no intention of taking up his cross and following the Lord. Sometimes, alas, nominalism is characteristic of whole so-called Christian churches. As I told you last time, I've been reading a new biography of Dr. J.I. Packer by Leland Riken. One feature of Packer's life story is his lifelong struggle to remain faithful to the Anglican Church in defiance of its embrace of heresy and its thoroughgoing acceptance of, if not encouragement, of nominal Christianity. Nominalism, as you may know, is a problem endemic to all churches, but historically, especially to state churches, as for centuries the English Anglican Church has been. If the expectation is that everyone, every citizen in a particular country should belong to the church of that country, the Lutheran Church in the Scandinavian uh, countries, the Roman Catholic Church in Italy or Spain, the Orthodox Church in Greece or Russia, and the Anglican Church in England, nominalism is virtually guaranteed to be the result, since those churches can hardly insist that if every one of the country's citizens is a member, that each of those members sincerely and seriously practice the Christian faith, as that faith is defined in the Word of God. If to be English and to be Anglican or to be Christian amount to the same thing, a great many Anglicans are inevitably going to be nominal Christians. Indeed, to be a Christian came to mean in England to be an Englishman. Dr. Packer became an an Anglican priest or minister when the Anglican Church in England had been for a long time in steep theological and spiritual decline. Heretical teaching was commonplace. Biblical convictions were openly mocked by the church's ministry. And probably most Anglican parishes were useless so far as leading anyone to salvation in Jesus Christ. In fact, when he became a Christian as a university student at Oxford, Packer's first instinct was to be angry with the Anglican church in which he had been raised because though he had diligently attended services from his boyhood with his parents, and as a boy even went through confirmation with his parish priest, he never heard the gospel explained, was never challenged to believe in Jesus Christ, never become a Christian in anything more than name. Nothing was ever said to him about personal faith in the Lord Jesus or the necessity of repentance from his sins. His parish church represented nominalism in a pure form. But Packer nevertheless remained an Anglican for a variety of reasons and eventually was ordained to the Anglican ministry. His eyes were open, of course. He knew his ministry in the Anglican Church was a ministry largely among nominal Christians, though there were certainly parishes in that church that were outspoken in their commitment to the gospel and the word of God. Packer's commitment was always to be uh, an agent of reformation in the Anglican Church. And for some years in the middle of the 20th century, as under the influence of Dr. Packer, and John Stott and others, the evangelical wing of the Anglican Church underwent a notable resurgence. 
it looked for a time as if that Reformation were actually underway. Much of his writing during those years was a direct refutation of the views being propagated by his fellow Anglican ministers. His riposte to Bishop J.A.T. Robinson's popular accommodation of the Christian faith to modern culture entitled Honest to God was itself entitled Keep Yourself from Idols. That's one Anglican minister talking about another Anglican minister. The 16th and 17th century Puritans, if you remember, were virtually all Anglicans. And they were likewise committed to the theological and spiritual renewal of their largely nominal church. John Bunyan, for example, was typical of Puritan preachers and writers. He scatters his Pilgrim's Progress with all sorts of pictures of nominal Christianity. Characters who took themselves for Christians, but whom Bunyan reveals to have been shams. People like Pliable, Mr. Worldly Wiseman, Formalist, Hypocrisy, Talkative, and Baez. The Puritans had many names for the people who occupied Anglican pews in their days. They called them temporaries, almost Christians, gospel hypocrites. Some of the great works of Puritan spirituality were devoted to this particular theme of self-deception. This idea that going through the motions was enough to make oneself a Christian. Think of William Guthrie's The Christian's Great Interest, Joseph Elaine's Alarm to the Unconverted, Thomas Shepard, most of Elaine's Elaine's, uh, Unconverted were churchgoers, Thomas Shepard's The Ten Virgins, and Jonathan Edwards' Charity and His Fruits. Now, Edwards was later than the Puritan period, but he was a man of the same school. And here's Alexander White, still later still, but uh, sometimes referred to as the last of the Puritans. It is a common, common saying that where despair has slain its thousands, presumption, that is thinking you're a Christian and you're not, has slain its ten thousands. The agonies of the former are indeed more terrible, but the securities of the latter are far more fatal. Again, in those years, the Anglican church was a state church and accordingly inevitably nominal. Many went to church simply because it was what English people did. You weren't a true, loyal Englishman if you weren't part of the English church. What is more, as English citizens, they were expected to attend church. In other words, there was a culture of church attendance and of identification with Christianity that had absolutely nothing to do with any personal, serious, intentional loyalty to Jesus Christ. They didn't go because they loved God, because they treasured his word, or wanted help to live a truly faithful Christian life. Most Anglicans in the days of the Puritans and a high percentage of Anglican ministers in those days neither knew what the gospel was nor cared. And they certainly were not committed to living a life of true loyalty to Jesus Christ. The Puritans wanted to change that. That's where their name comes from. They wanted to purify their church. Dr. Packer, who loved the Puritans, was following in their train. 
He was involved in those years in one committee after another, one church project after another, and he was almost always the one Bible-believing evangelical Christian on the committee, and he was always outvoted. He paid a price for his loyalty to the church of his birth. Many Christians couldn't understand how a champion of historic biblical Christianity could make common cause with a church full of heresy and naked disobedience to the word of God. And over time, as a result, he lost friends. He lost opportunities for ministry for this reason. But still, he shouldered on as an Anglican in the Anglican church. And so it continued when he moved to Canada in 1979 to teach at Regent College in Vancouver, B.C. He became part of the Anglican Church of Canada, a church in much the same spiritual situation as his church back home in England. And there, too, he worked for Reformation without any real success. But recently, as you may know, he left the Anglican Church of Canada and allied himself with the Anglican Church of North America, the new grouping of Anglicans who had finally had enough of English and Canadian Anglicanism's toleration and promotion of theological error and utter indifference to the law of God. The bishop of the Anglican Church of the Canada, uh, Anglican Church of Canada Diocese, the New Westminster Diocese in Vancouver, B.C., in which Dr. Packer was licensed to preach, made the moral approval of a homosexual lifestyle a requirement for ministers in the diocese. Packer, of course, and a number of others refused, and his license to preach was withdrawn. And so it was, he left the church of his birth and of his upbringing and of a great many years of his ministry for this new biblically faithful Anglican Church of North America. When a minister can no longer be faithful to the word of God, when he can no longer keep himself unstained by the world, he has no choice but to follow God rather than men. Now, I tell that story, the story of many ministers' lives, actually, for two reasons. One, of course, is to remind us that churches as a whole, both denominations and individual congregations, must likewise follow James' counsel here, must look into the perfect law of liberty and persevere as doers of the word. Indeed, it's doubtful that many individual Christians will escape the temptation of nominalism if their churches do not. When churches refuse to be doers of the word, when they continue to read the Bible in their Sunday services so that their people are clearly hearing the word of God, when the church continues to do some lip service to the Bible, continues to sing Christian hymns about the grace of God, the obligation of men to believe and to obey, continues to collect money for the poor, but then prove themselves utterly indifferent or openly hostile to the will of God as it is published in that word, at least when the word of God conflicts with their modern sensibilities, it's virtually guaranteed that most of their people in due time will become hearers and not doers of the word. And pretty soon, as we are seeing everywhere, in these churches, their numbers decline so steeply that no longer do they have even hearers of the word left in their pews. Their people have so completely lost interest 
in hearing or doing that they no longer bother coming to church. Indeed, the interaction between ecclesiastical and personal or individual nominalism is very clearly in church history one of cause and effect. The more nominal the church, the more nominal its members will be. That's why it is so important for Christians to be in churches that help them to keep the edge on their Christian life, that are always challenging them to live out their faith, always reminding them of how many reasons they have to love and serve the God who loved and served them at such great cost to himself. But the second reason why it is instructive to look at the problem James is exposing here, a perennial problem in Christian history, to look at it on the larger scale of whole churches, is that it is easier to see the real nature of nominalism and its, and its effects when they are portrayed on a larger scale. Many things have to be enlarged in order to see clearly a living cell, for example or a highly populated area on a map. James reminds us in verse 22 that the individual nominal Christian, the hearer but not the doer of the word of God, is easily deceived about his own state. He has no idea that what he does is actually worthless. What James says it is here. He thinks is a Christian. She thinks she is. In a group this size... I have an almost moral certainty that there is someone among us this evening who thinks he or she is a Christian and who is, in fact, not a Christian. Not truly, not genuinely. (coughs) Participation in Sunday worship, some money to the church, involvement in one of its good causes, He or she easily imagines that somebody who does such things must be a Christian. Everybody else considers him or her to be a Christian. The minister considers him or her to be a Christian. (coughs) Why shouldn't he? Why shouldn't she? And so they go on with their lives confident that they are among the people of God. Indeed, in some of the most horrifying words that we will ever read in the Bible, the Lord describes such people... Many such people, he says, finding out only on the day of judgment that while they always thought themselves to be among God's people, (coughs) God himself never considered them to be so. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. There too, the Lord is plainly contrasting what a so-called Christian says with what he or she actually did. The Lord here has them saying that they prophesied, they drove out demons, they did mighty works, all of that further to solemnize us. Who of us imagines that we've done anything as great as that? If that wasn't enough, 
What about our paltry observances and our meager performances? Remember, Jesus perform, Judas performed miracles. Judas drove out demons with the rest of the 12 disciples when <coughs> Jesus sent them out on that preaching tour. These people did everything. Everything except the will of God. What the Lord is saying in this provocative and memorable way is that we have to be Christians indeed, not simply Christians in name. Followers of the real Jesus and not simply polite admirers of a Jesus of our own imagining. But easy as it is to deceive ourselves, it's harder to fail to see the problem when it is displayed on the larger screen. The nominal churches, and this is a point so obvious and so important that every Christian in the United States of America ought to be reckoning with this question and this issue and this fact frequently. The great churches of our land, the historic churches of our land, are disappearing before our very eyes. Christian churches, though they claim to be, they stand for nothing distinctly Christian. They don't require that their people keep themselves unstained from the world. Even most of their ministry to the poor has about it the air of, of progressive politics rather than real Christian love and charity. They are hemorrhaging members so rapidly that the date of their death can now be precisely predicted and it doesn't lie very far in the future. The Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the once great churches of our land, at least the old large denominations of that type, are all in their death throes. Few will make it past or much past the middle of the century in any meaningful institutional existence. It's harder for an individual to see that he's not being blessed by the Lord because he's only a hearer and not a doer of the word. Especially in a country like ours where so many live comfortable lives, at least outwardly. But when whole churches are cratering before our very eyes, <clears throat> it's harder to avoid the facts or facing the facts. Those churches are a warning to each one of us as individual believers how important it is to remain a doer and not just a hearer of the word. And how easily someone can deceive himself on this point. How impressive outward appearances can sometimes remain while there is little actually to demonstrate a true loyalty to Jesus or to his word. Why should the Lord bless those churches when their entire life is defined by the fact that they are hearers only and not doers of his word? When they don't look carefully at the perfect law of liberty to find their marching orders and when they are unwilling to imitate the character of God in their own lives. But then, why should God bless me if I am in my own life what those churches are in theirs? John Bunyan reminds us that the reason God has given his word to us is precisely so that we would live by it. Or as he put it, the soul of religion is the practical part. 
We've so far looked at the issue in the terms James uses here, the Bible's summons to be doers and not just hearers. But as we conclude, let's remember that this is what the Bible so often says was God's own purpose in salvation, to produce doers. It's his purpose not just to save our necks, but transform our lives, to make us, as Paul put it, in Titus 2.14, a people of his very own zealous for good works. He might, as, might just as well have written zealous to do the word of God. It can't be otherwise. Obviously, God is perfectly good and perfectly just. He would never forgive our sins just so that we could continue committing them. As the beautiful hymn has it, Jesus died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. To be a doer of God's word is to honor the sacrifice the Lord Jesus made for us. And what is the best antidote to the nominalism that James condemns here, warns us is a form of self-deception, and will finally make all of our profession of faith in Christ worthless? It's actually quite simple. The way to keep from ever becoming a nominal Christian, a hearer but not a doer of the Word of God, is always to remember how important it is not to be one and how many there are in the church, how many there have always been in the church who gladly hear and never do. We said that James is throughout his letter simply putting the teaching of the Lord Jesus in other words. He's certainly doing that here, reproducing especially the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon we learn that whatever else the Lord expects his people will live differently, will live better. They will be more humble, they will be more pure, more honest, more faithful, more sincere, more merciful, more loving, more committed to his cause. And he admits in the final paragraphs of that sermon that there will always be among his followers people who hear but do not do. He is not there, just as James is not here, distinguishing between people who are known to be Christians and people who are not. He's not distinguishing between people who claim to be Christians and people who don't claim to be Christians. He's not distinguishing between people who go to church and people who never go to a Christian church. They're talking about people who in both cases are hearers of the Word of God. Both groups belong to the Christian community. Both groups listen to sermons in church. Both are acquainted with the Bible. But one group of people hears and that's all. They only hear. The other group hears and does. It's not easy to do the will of God, to hear the word of God and then to obey it. The Bible is very honest about that. But facing the hard work it may require, recall James' words. He will be blessed in his doing. God knows that you're doing, that you're striving to do, that you want to be a doer of his word, that it chills you 
to your heart that you might ever be just a hearer and not a doer of his word. And he promises he will reward you for that. And what can possibly compare with that? Amen.